Welcome to the In Search of Wisdom podcast, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, you can visit us at perennialleader.com. Greetings, everyone. I am Joshua. Thank you for joining us. In today's episode, my guest is Pete Hamill, the author of Embodied Leadership. I've been a fan of this book for a long time, and I enjoyed this fascinating and insightful conversation. You will find it filled with practical wisdom that will make you think in new ways. I hope you enjoy this episode with the wise and gracious Pete Hamill. Pete Hamill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. You're the author of Embodied Leadership, and I'm really excited to discuss this topic with you. So thank you for being here. For those that may not be familiar with your work, can you let us know a bit about yourself and what led you to write the book? I've been working with embodiment since about 2002. You know, for me, there was there's a lot of stuff that's written about embodiment that's written in different places, but it's always kind of written from a perspective of you, you kind of already understand that that's important. It's not written from the perspective of I'm a, a kind of a manager who wants to become a better leader in my life or I'm in this role or that role and I just want to become a better leader. There was nothing written to start from that point. It was always written kind of, I think, for people who had already been on a journey of exploration themselves. And I wanted to write something that can start and really open this work up to somebody who's just at that place of going, I just want to know how to be a better leader. What's the most effective way to do that? And I think this is the most effective way to do that. But in some ways, you know, a lot of people weren't finding it. So my aim in this book was to make it more accessible and make it more visible. All right. Thank you so much. I love the book and you've asked a lot of tough questions and, and really got deep in the topic. In the beginning of the book, you discuss the British cycling team as an example of, of transformation and state that organizations are obviously spending significant amounts of money and resources on leadership development programs, but not necessarily getting similar results. And you believe that on the surface, there are two reasons and underneath there's a deeper reason. Could you elaborate on that? So I think there's a number of things that tie into to why that's the case. When we start to look at how leadership development is done a lot in our modern world, a lot of it is done around based around developing self-awareness and around educating people on models, models and theories. And there's a lot of PowerPoint slides and there's a lot of questionnaires that you can do where you can find out your this color or this set of four letters or whatever it is. And you can find out all of that information. And the, that's interesting and that's useful in many ways. But the challenge of awareness is that awareness doesn't necessarily lead to change. It leads to the potential for change, but it doesn't lead to change necessarily in and of itself. I think many of us will have met people in life who can tell you why it is they do what they do. They can probably recite their personal history and tell you where exactly in their personal history something happened that caused them to be this type of person today. And, they, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But they haven't changed it. 
and they haven't taken responsibility for it. So there's a way in which our modern kind of conception of leadership development kind of leaves people on their own for the bit of the journey that says, actually, now you have to do something different in the world. Now you have to change. You've got this awareness, and now you have to change. And there's a whole group of people for whom, when you give them awareness, what happens is they start to go into what I would call a shame spiral which is like, oh, I have awareness, I do this thing. And then, okay, I go out in the world and I kind of get to the end of my day and I go, oh no, I did that thing again. And then it's like, oh, I get to beat myself up and be self-critical about the fact that I did that thing again. Then that leads into this kind of spiral of hopelessness and shame and can I ever really change? And who? And it, in some ways it solidifies that identity as this is who I am. And when you look at what it takes to really step forward as a leader, then, you know, at some level, what we've got to do is we've started got to start to grapple with what are the bits where we need to change? What are the things that we need to do differently? And how do you support somebody in going through a process of change? And a lot of the modern leadership development industry, in my view, abandons people for that bit. And, you know, some people who are motivated and enthusiastic will go and make some changes. And they're kind of pointed to by the modern leadership development industry as the evidence of success. But in my view, that's misclaimed success. It's like the people went and they made those changes themselves. Yes, they got awareness from whatever they did, and that was brilliant. But they really did the, the hard work of learning to be able to do something different consistently and when under pressure, which would be my definition for an embodied change. They did that work themselves. And so I think there's a, a big piece around that. The, the other big piece for me is the leadership development industry hasn't really updated itself in a big way. It's, you know, how long has kind of those personality models been around for? How long have we been using those personality questionnaires and tests? How long have we been doing these things? There is good research around what it takes to change and actually what it is to change the self, that process of learning. And that really hasn't been applied. And it hasn't been applied because it's slightly different. It's a bit like, you know, the, there's a, a runner, a long distance runner. And I remember hearing that he was talking about his success, his Olympic success. Mo Farah, his name is. He was talking about his Olympic success. And he really only got successful when he started working on his upper body strength. Now, that's counterintuitive for a runner, a long distance runner, to start working on their upper body strength. But that's what gave him the ability to get his gold medals. And there's a lot of counterintuitive stuff that really makes sense for leadership development, but it's counterintuitive. And we don't face into that as an industry. We don't face into that in organizations. We continue doing the stuff that is kind of yesterday's ideas, yesterday's concepts of what made sense. And we're not really pushing those boundaries. And when you look at people like the British cycling team, they pushed the boundaries. They said, what is it we can do? What is it we can do to keep each, you know, each fraction of a second to make really push that edge? And I don't think we do that in leadership. I think we're happy to sit back and create comfortable environments for people that get great scores on happy sheets, but that don't actually push people into what is it really going to take for you to change and for you to step up as a leader. Thank you. I've got a number of kind of questions around that, and hopefully we can get a little bit of clarity around pushing those boundaries in terms of leadership. So I've got a, I've got a few kind of topics from the book, if I could kind of go through them and if you could elaborate a bit and expound where you think may be useful. Early in the book, you discuss Descartes' kind of popular quote, I think, therefore I am, and kind of propose a 
alternative philosophical view. Would you mind expounding on that? Just to give a, a little bit of background, Descartes was a philosopher and mathematician in the 1600s who was trying to persuade the Catholic Church, which was the kind of source of power in Europe at that time, to allow him to cut up dead bodies so that he could move science forward. But the Catholic Church was saying that essentially bodies were sacred because they were part of the human. And so cutting up these dead bodies and studying and science and medicine, they were saying no. And what he did was the brilliant philosophical trick of saying that actually the divine bit of us is this sort of mental spirit part, which departs after we're dead, which is the soul, the mental spirit stuff. And then there was this physical part, which was subject to a separate set of laws. And essentially, the physical bit wasn't divine, wasn't kind of important, wasn't significant. I mean, it was a very debated topic at the time, because there's lots of problems with that idea. Basically, what it did was it gave a way for, for science to move forward without threatening the church. And for that, it's brilliant, because we have modern medicine, we have technology, we have lots of stuff, basically because of his magic trick of getting this separation. Well, it wasn't initially his idea, but he was the one who really made it into a, a big thing. It was his pushing it forward. Now, the challenge with that is that the body as a physical thing, was then subject to the rules of physics and the rules of cause and effect. The body, therefore, was part of a chain of movements which took place from the Big Bang or whatever happened at the start of the universe right the way through to modern time. And arguably, when I put my hand up, it's essentially not my free will that's involved in doing that. It is the subject of a long chain of movements of molecules that started at the Big Bang, which came to this point in time, which was inevitable. And there was no way that I could influence that. That hand went up because of that, not because of anything I did. And it left this gap, this space, which was um, we have this divine bit of us, which according to what we'd like to believe, has some free will, has some choice, has some agency in the world, and can be responsible for our actions. And then we have this physical bit, which couldn't. And then there was no way of one impacting the other. I mean, these were two different things, two different substances. One was a physical substance, the other was a, a thinking thing, which was Descartes' premise. So it created a lot of problems, this kind of separation. And to be honest, we're still dealing with those problems. You know, it solved a lot of problems, which is kind of probably why everybody went along with it at the time, because it was convenient and it moved everything forward. It was very pragmatic, but it created a lot of problems, which is this kind of separation and this sense of there's this physical thing and then there's us and we are separate from this physical thing. We're separate from the world. We're separate from each other. You know, it creates this separation, this distance. And the distance isn't really real. And if you look at anything from modern neuroscience, basically it would argue that that distance isn't real, that we can't have that distance. It, it, it just doesn't work. And so when we start to then go, okay, well, actually, if that's not true, if that separation isn't real and our minds and bodies aren't separate things, and we take that seriously, which modern science says is absolutely true, if we take that seriously, then what does that mean for all our personality questionnaires, which are incredibly cognitive, and all of our leadership development work, which doesn't ever really address the physical body? And yet, when you think about it, just a very simple level, 
our body is the source of information that we have for how we experience ourselves day to day. It's like, I feel confident or I don't. How do I know? It's what's happening in my body. It's the sense, the, the emotions, the, the sensations that are arising and living in my body. I feel safe in this environment or I don't is the sensation in our bodies. So our bodies are this ongoing process through which our entire experience is grounded in that. It's the way in which we experience the world, yet we have this separation idea. And when we start to bring them together, there's this huge possibility of going, well, what would that mean for how we would develop leaders? What would that mean for our conceptions of who we are as a person? And I think, you know, Descartes, was brilliant in what he did at that time. And, and, you know, we don't want to lose what that's given us. But actually, science has moved on and we know that it wasn't correct. And so now we need to move beyond that. And so the point I make is he made the error, in my view, which was he said, you know, I think, therefore I am, which was kind of like he, he was trying to ground everything in this basic, basic experience. And he was kind of going, how do we know what, if anything, is real? and if I think, if I can see myself doubting, then there's a process of thought going on. So therefore, I'm thinking, therefore, I exist. But he then made the step of saying, therefore, I am a thinking being, which is not necessarily a natural follow on from that. And so he made the step of saying, I am therefore a thinking being and only a thinking being. And that was what allowed him to create this separation. And that piece of logic, just as a piece of logic, is pretty flawed. Yes, okay, I think, therefore, there's a process of doubting that's going on, therefore, there is a doubter. Okay, yes, you can follow that. But to then extrapolate to the place of going, therefore, man is a thinking being and only a thinking being, that's where we get into troubled territory. And that's really the flaw within his work. You're right of, of going with your gut, it's actually what we do. Could you speak a little bit more on that? Well, this comes back to the sense that our body is telling us, giving us information all the time. So let me kind of frame it in, in a common situation. So we walk into a meeting, kind of like we walk in late, and you can walk into that meeting and you know the mood of the room. You know, if something's just happened, and the mood has just gotten really, really frosty and people are not happy with each other, you don't need to cognitively analyze that situation and go through all the different possibilities. You know. And how do you know? We know because we feel moods and we feel moods in our bodies. Actually, basic biology. I mean, we've kind of been writing about the way in which nervous systems impact on other nervous systems. So we feel that. And there's a huge source of information that's available to us. And actually, in biological terms, we're designed to feel that. That, that is, in many respects, from an evolutionary perspective, a really important ability that we have. Because if we were walking in the savannah and we encountered a situation that was potentially dangerous, we didn't have time to cognitive, you know, or, or the human beings that spent all the time cognitively analyzing all the different possibilities of what could possibly happen and what might be there, they died out. The human beings who developed the capacity to feel and go, something's wrong, I need to pay attention to something being wrong here and go with their gut, they survived. They didn't end up as something else's dinner. So 
there's a way in which that going with our gut is about tying into the fact that we all have within us the ability to know that something's up, that something's going on. So another example of this would be if you're upset or you're angry, you'll often find that children or animals will know sometimes before you do. They'll pick it up. They know. They spot it. They spot it right away. They're not picking it up because they're cognitively analyzing stuff. They're not picking it up because they're having a conversation with you and quizzing you about stuff. They just feel it. And there is that capacity. Now, unfortunately, what can happen as we grow up is, you know, you've got the kid coming down. Mummy's upset because she's just had an argument with daddy. And the kid comes to mummy and goes, mummy, what's wrong? And the mummy goes, no, nothing, nothing, dear. It's okay. Nothing's wrong. And the kid is then torn between the felt sense that they have and then the trust that they have for their mother, who is kind of like this magical person who makes everything happen in the world and knows all the answers to stuff. And they're torn between what they're feeling and what they're being told. And over time, they can very easily start to go with what they're being told and distrust their physical body's way of telling them what's going on. And, you know, so as we grow up, we can become very, very acculturated to we've got to cognitively know, we've got to have our evidence, we've got to have the theory or the concept or the book or whatever it is, rather than going, actually, no, there's something that I feel here that's important that we need to pay attention to. And that's, for me, that's the bit of, of the gut. And we all know it. At some level, we all know it. We walk into that conference room and something horrible has just happened. And we know it. We feel it. And it's just like going, well, that's the extreme end of the spectrum. That's the really big, significant thing that's hard to miss. What about day to day? What about when I walk through the office? How able am I to pick up on the political dynamics that are going on around me? How able am I to pick up on the morale and the mood of my team? Just day to day, not the big dramatic things, but the day to day stuff. How able am I to pick up on what this person might need from me right now as a leader? So all of that stuff is there and available to us. And, and the body is like a finely tuned instrument for picking all that stuff up if we pay attention. This reminds me of a quote that I'm fond of from Aristotle a couple thousand years ago. It's kind of stated, educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. So it sounds like some of these kind of ideas have maybe been around. Why do you think it's so difficult for us to realize and, and step forward? So we've come a long way. So in, I think it was 94, Daniel Goleman published Emotional Intelligence. And in the late 80s, emotional intelligence is kind of like a concept you wouldn't have bet on that this would be the next big thing in the late 80s. You know, <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't necessarily an inevitable kind of next step. But, you know, by the time you get into the 2000s, emotional intelligence is a term that can be used on radio and TV without being explained. And, and so, you know, we've made a huge step in many respects, but we still live in a very cognitive analytical culture. We live in, a, in a, an economic culture, which is based around this economic idea of this rational man, homo economus, who makes rational economic decisions. Now, we know through a lot of research that that's not the case. And a lot of behavioral economics, which is a kind of like a newer field of economics, is really starting to, to play with the fact that actually man is not rational and does not make decisions on a purely rational basis. 
But that idea is very tied into our education system, is very tied into our history and our culture. And we have deified kind of this cognition and, and this rational way of thinking about the world. And somebody I know pointed out once, he said, you know, we've done all this work around the, the rational and the, the technological world to the point where we can have all these kind of whizzy phones with, that can do all this really cool stuff. And I can pick up the phone and I can call China or wherever in the world in an instant now. But we haven't really done the work that enables me to be able to say, I'm sorry, or I love you. Those are more difficult things to do now. So we've done all the work in this other one domain. We've kind of left behind the other, the other part of ourselves. And the other part of ourselves is like, because we have so focused on the technological and the rational, the techno-rational worldview, we've just kind of left that bit behind. We've left that as not important. And, you know, the education field, if you, if you go back to that split that Descartes did, where he said, okay, you know, the church, you can have that bit and science will have this bit. I mean, that's kind of what happened. Science and education got its bit and, and has worked with its bit and has done a huge amount of progress with its bit. But the other bit just got left behind. And unfortunately, the separation was false. So we, we left a whole chunk of ourselves behind at that moment of time and haven't really grappled with it. And while I love the fact that Daniel Goleman managed to produce emotional intelligence and get emotional intelligence on the radar that it is today... If you read Emotional Intelligence as a book, it is a very cognitive exploration of emotions and what it is. I mean, Emotional Intelligence, it's even in the name, it's a very cognitivist view of emotions. And what's missing still, and I think this is where the embodied work comes in, is what is the lived experience? It's this idea that, you know, you can have a neuroscientist, for example, who studied grief and who knows everything about the process of grief and can tell you exactly what happens in the brain as it moves through each stage of grief and can look at the whole process and, you know, the stages of, of going through it and all of that kind of stuff, but who's never experienced grief, has never experienced grief in their life. Now, that neuroscientist, she may be brilliant. She may have all sorts of wonderful intellectual understandings about grief, but she may be utterly unable to be with you in an empathetic way as you are experiencing grief because of her own lack of experiential knowledge of grief. It's a little bit like that. We've so deified the intellectual, techno-rational bit that we've kind of lost touch with, you know, what it is to, as a human being to be in the lived experience of something and be with somebody in that. And when we look at something like grief, it becomes really obvious to us that somebody who has that understanding may not be able to be with me when I'm grieving. It's the same with leadership. Somebody who has all the intellectual cognitive knowledge may not be able to lead the way out of a wet paper bag. It is the ability to take those actions when it matters. That's, that's what's significant. In leadership, it seems there's kind of no shortage of, of terms. You mentioned emotional intelligence, terms like mindfulness, conscious leadership. Is there anything that comes to mind around similarities or, or differences other than what you just discussed with other kind of leadership methodologies, maybe? I think there's a number of things that are happening with the field of leadership, which is which are only good. And leadership is moving to a, a, an understanding, which I think is less individualistic, 
based on the idea that you can put somebody in a position of power, but people won't necessarily follow them. <laughs> so, you know, we know that there's more to leadership than just putting, you know, there's something about the relation between the leader and the team or whoever else is around them. It's a more relational phenomenon. We know that now. We know that actually there's something about the what we're leading towards, the purpose of leadership, which becomes really important, which is where I think things like conscious leadership start to become really significant because they're kind of saying that actually if you really want to gain, gain people's loyalty, there, there needs to be some kind of sense of actually we're trying to do something that feels important, significant, and that has an impact on people. And then there's mindfulness, which I think, you know, for me, is very, very aligned with embodiment. And a lot of embodied work is like mindfulness and action in some ways. But, you know, mindfulness is essentially saying that, you know, based on the techno-rational conversation I was having, we've kind of elevated the, the, our cognitive ability to this level. And, and the mindful piece kind of says, well, actually, that's the servant, not the master. That we need to be able to step back from that and kind of go, oh, and if you spend time in mindfulness practice, you start to see that actually your mind is just running 100 miles an hour. And it's a really useful tool to put towards solving problems or to put towards this or put towards that. But there has to be something else that's making the choices. You know, the the mind on its own will just be, you know, the analogy that's often used is is the an elephant, a wild elephant, or a wild horse, or a wild bull, or whatever. You know, it's that, and then there needs to be something which is like our own ability to be able to go and actually, how do I manage my attention? How do I manage my mind? How do I have something there? And I think that's really, really important because it starts to give us the capacity to be able to go, okay, so how do I draw upon my emotions? How do I draw upon my sensations? How do I draw upon my thinking and bring those things together in a way that as a, as a whole can be a very powerful and compelling way to engage with others? If there was someone listening that was looking to integrate maybe just a small step towards an embodied practice, what would you say would be the best starting point? The first thing I'll say is different people start in different places. They'll start with different levels of awareness of sensation in their bodies, uh, awareness of what's going on. But, you know, the simplest piece is just to start to focus on building that kind of awareness. And so what I would suggest to people is like before going into a meeting or when you sit down at the start of a meeting or, or these days, Given the world we're in at the moment, it's it's sort of a Zoom call or a MS Teams call or something like that. But before you sit down at the start of it, just to take a moment to kind of plant your feet firmly on the floor, to ground yourself, to extend your spine, sit, sit up straight, and take a deep breath down into your stomach. And just notice what's going on in your body. You know, what are you kind of feeling? What are you kind of aware of? Are you aware of like you're carrying something from the past meeting? Are you stressed about something? Just pay attention to what's there. And then become aware of or speak to yourself. What's your intention for this meeting, for this conversation? It's like go into it from an intentional place. So in this meeting, in this conversation, this is what I'm here for. And just allow that, if you like, allow that to organize your psychobiology. Allow that to be like, okay, I'm organizing myself around. I'm grounded because my feet are planted on the floor. I'm present in my body. And it's like, I'm organizing myself around. What I really want to get out of this meeting is this. And just allow that to organize you. And if you just be in a practice of doing that, 
I don't know how many meetings you have a day, maybe five, six meetings a day. But if you be in the practice of doing that, what you'll just start to notice is that you'll be much more present, much more aware of kind of some of the social cues and stuff that's going on in the meeting, the mood of the meeting. And you'd be more likely to achieve the intention that you walked in with. That, that would be like a starting point. There's a lot more that we could move on to from that, but that would just be like a starter for 10, if you like. Yeah, that's great. There seems to be a lot of division in the world. Do you feel embodied leadership is kind of something that can help us transition to a more connected world? Basically, yes. But And that's part of the reason why I do this work. I mean, I grew up in a time and place of conflict, and conflict is kind of inevitable. If you see it in an organization, just at a simple level, in an organization, conflict is inevitable because there are limited resources, there are limited people, and there's limited time, and you've got to divide them up. And there will be inevitable conflict inside of that boundary. If you see it on a world basis, there is difference all over the place. There is history. We haven't always been nice to each other through history, unfortunately. So we have difference and we have history, and there are power differentials in society and the world first world, third world, whatever basis you want to look at that. So there will be conflict. I mean, it's just kind of inevitable that there will be differences, there will be conflict. Then it's a question of how do we resolve it? And do we know how to be in conflict with each other without it being destructive? And a lot of the time, we don't know how to do that. So at one level, there's a bit of this for me, which is like, we need to learn to be in our bodies while we're in conflict with each other. Because When we hurt somebody, if you just think about this, you know, when you're in a relationship with somebody and you kind of are having an argument and you have that moment where you say that thing that you know is going to hurt and it was really probably not a nice thing to say, but you were just angry and frustrated and you said it. One of the things that will often, you, if you notice and you pay attention, is those moments when you say those things are moments when you kind of have gone up into your head, up into rationality, and you've kind of disconnected from any sense in your body of empathy and humanity with the other person. You know, we've we just disconnected from all of this lived experience. And we've just been in our discomfort because of our anger. We've retreated off into our intellectual space and we've said something really cutting that has hurt. And any time that we really want to hurt somebody, emotionally, physically, we kind of need to do that. It isn't possible to hurt somebody and stay in connection with your humanity and their humanity. We just have to disconnect from that and be able to hurt somebody. So there's something about how do we learn to be in conflict while being connected to ourselves and connected to the other. And that, that's a big piece. I don't say that lightly. That's a big, big piece of work. There's another thing which I see in the world right now, which is a, a phenomenon that's been going building for the, the last number of years, which is the phenomenon of othering, which is kind of like having some other that we're better than. And, you know, we, arguably we've had this for a long time. Arguably when the... European slave traders went to Africa and found some slaves. They were othering them. They were arguing that they were better than they were. And they did it really for economic reasons. But, but, but they did that. That was an othering that went on. There was an othering that went on previous to that in terms of nobility and non-nobility and feudal Europe and all of that kind of stuff. But the, the form that that's taking at the moment is an othering that's going on in the political stage. And it's an othering that goes on between right and left politically. It's an othering that goes on from liberals looking down on more working class people, for example. 
it's another ring that goes on the other direction too. What you're doing to us and blah, 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 and your attitude, arrogant attitudes and all of that kind of stuff. And so there's an ongoing place of othering that's going on. And part of its payoff is that we get to be better than somebody. And as human beings, I think one of the things we really love is to be better than somebody. You know, whoever I am, whatever troubles I have in life, whatever difficulties I have, however painful and horrible whatever I've had to crawl through has been, I get to say I'm better than you. And that's quite nice. And again, when we do that, we objectify the other. We step away from I'm connected to my humanity, I'm connected to your humanity, into a place where I'm connected to my superiority, and I'm utterly not connected to your humanity because I'm making myself superior to you. And arguably, that's just the same thing that's been going on for centuries and millennia. But it's become a very acute thing in the political process in today's world. And the experience of being othered is something that people are in a strong reaction against. And, of course, are perpetrating back on who they feel are othering them. And so can it help? Definitely. Because it's that place of where I can drop into and go. Actually, at the root of othering is often, you know, there's a lot of pain. Whatever it is, whoever you are, if you're a white working class person from a rural time where you've lost all the industry and you've lost everything and you're kind of feeling like you've, you know, the politicians have kind of abandoned you and done nothing for you. Wherever you're from, there's pain. And when we don't allow ourselves to connect with the humanity of that person and their pain, then we're othering them. And, you know, there's that place of what is it to feel empathy? And then for each of us, what is it for us to feel our own pain of whatever background we had, whatever upbringing we had, whatever pain we suffered, to be able to feel our own pain and still feel connected to somebody else's empathy without feeling like our pain makes us superior in some way? And that's hard. That's really hard work. But yes, I think embodiment moves everybody more into their humanity and their collective humanity. And from that place, we can speak to each other and we can learn to have those conversations. I really love the fact that you communicate the difficulty of this work. And there was a a statement towards the end of the book, we are always practicing something. Yeah, we are. I mean... Right now, you're practicing listening to this podcast and you're practicing listening to it in whatever way you you habitually listen to things. Cynicism or acceptance or whatever it is, we're practicing a way of listening. And so as human beings, we're always practicing something. And the good thing about that is that if we pay attention and we interrupt and we start practicing something different, we can start that tomorrow. And we can start practicing something different. It's like this isn't equipment intensive. It's like, I can practice something different when I'm queuing at the supermarket or the grocery store. I can practice something different when I'm in my next meeting. It's available to us moment to moment. It requires some attention and some focus, but it's always available to us. I love that. As we transition to to wrap up the conversation, how would you say writing and researching this book has maybe changed you or how you see leadership? There's a bit, I think, that is significant that I need to say in order to answer that question. (laughs) So I'm going to detour if that's okay, but I, I promise I'll come back. So there's a bit for me, which is like part of what I explore in the book is the neuroscience behind 
how, how we operate. And there's this thing that I refer to called somatic markers, which comes from the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio. And it's this thing that we have these emotional soundtracks to our memories, which live inside of us. And so if I ask you to think about your most embarrassing moment, you don't just have a cognitive memory arrive back in your brain. You kind of relive that moment. You kind of feel it. You feel the emotions of that moment. And this is part of that evolutionary warning system that I, I kind of touched on earlier, which is this sense that if we walked into a situation that was potentially dangerous, the emotional soundtrack of any past experience would play to warn us to move ourselves towards safety. And it does that often below awareness. So it does that in what we call our pre-conscious. And what I mean by that is like, if you scratch your nose sometimes, you'll scratch your nose before you're even fully aware that there was an itch there. You kind of do that. We, we just take care of that sometimes. So we're moving to make ourselves more comfortable before we're fully aware of the discomfort. And that is remarkable. And the, the, what's remarkable about that actually is that a lot of our human behavior happens on that basis. You know, conflict erupts in a team. I will take an action to make myself more comfortable in that situation before I've really thought about it, before I've noticed that I'm uncomfortable, and I'll start sort of placating the conflict or doing whatever I need to do. And then afterwards, what we do, as psychologists have been telling us years, we post-rationalize a lot. So afterwards, we make up a reason why we did what we did. We post-rationalize the reason why we did what we did. And so that process, it's really important to understand that so much of human behavior happens in that way. It happens on the basis of we're going through life and we don't really have an intention a lot of the time. We're just going through life reacting how we're reacting, reacting the way that we've been shaped to react, reacting with what we've practiced historically. And, you know, so something happens and we respond in the way that we historically respond, which is how we be ourselves. It's like, I don't wake up in the morning and think, how do I be Pete? I just do it. And this is how we do it. It's like our body plays these soundtracks. We respond to these soundtracks. We take action to make ourselves more comfortable. And that keeps us on the broad path of what it is to be Pete. And so there are some people, if you ask them to stand up on a table at a party and dance in front of everybody, they won't be able to do it because it will feel so viscerally uncomfortable. They won't be able to do it without some alcohol, maybe to numb that visceral discomfort. If we start to see that, then one of the things that comes out of this is like a lot of other people's behavior that we make up intention for. And I say we, that deliberately, we make up intention behind it. A lot of it it's just them being them. It's like sometimes when I'm pissing people off, I'm just Pete being Pete. It's not like there's a grand intention behind it. It's not like I'm trying to do something to them. It's like this is me habitually being me in this situation and circumstance in the way that I've kind of know how to respond to that situation and circumstance. And when you do that, it takes a lot of the sting out of life when you realize that a lot of the time we're just kind of going through on autopilot. Now, the other side of that is like, there's also this great opportunity, which is that we have the opportunity to become aware, to wake up from that and go, and I have the opportunity to choose my behavior. And that's part of what the embodied work gives us, is it gives us a way of bringing ourselves into the present moment, of being with the discomfort that arrives, arises inside of us, being with that, 
and being able to choose a different response. And that's part of, I think, what makes this work really difficult to sell in some ways, because what it requires is spending more time being uncomfortable and getting comfortable with our discomfort. But when I look at what writing this book and thinking it through gave me, it's it's two things, really. It's, It's that sense of taking the sting out of other people's actions is like, not judging their intentions so bad, you know? And then the other side of it has been this sort of sense of like really getting clear on, it's like, oh yeah, I'm uncomfortable right now. That's what I got to sit with. I don't get to run away from that. I don't get to distract myself or numb it in with food or whatever. I just got to sit with it. It's my job to be okay with this discomfort because this discomfort comes from some point in the past when I learned that this wasn't okay or something was bad about this. And I've got to sit with that. And so my my particular background, I mean, I grew up in a time and a place of conflict, and I learned how to make myself invisible. And I learned how to make myself invisible in order, you know, physically, emotionally, kind of withdraw and make myself really small and invisible in order to keep myself safe. And so part of my journey has been the journey of learning to sit with discomfort of an internalized terror of a child who's in a place of conflict and being okay with that and going, I can sit with that now as an adult. I don't need to respond the way that that child needed to respond. And actually the way that that child needed to respond may well have saved my life, may well have brought me to this point in time, but I don't need to do that anymore. I'm no longer in a conflict zone. And I'm an adult now. I have different sets of resources for how to deal with that. And so for me, you know, it's that place of being able to kind of see the discomforts and the the stuff that arises in my body as I kind of meet all of this childhood and early adult programming of, you know, what's allowed and what's acceptable and what's good and what's bad. I'd be able to go, oh, wow. Yeah. No, that's there. I can see that. I can feel it. I can see what it wants me to do. It wants me to withdraw. It wants me to make myself small. It wants me to do whatever. And then I can sit with it and make a choice about my behavior. That I'm profoundly grateful for. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing. Is there anyone from from history that kind of comes to mind that maybe gives us a good example or, or someone that you, that you uh, look to as an example for embodied leadership? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, that's always a tricky thing. And it's a tricky thing because leaders are always of their time. For example, if I today was to give away all of my property and all of my money and everything I own and go into the wilderness and go into a cave and subsist on what I can find around me, I would be taken into care by the social services and probably committed in a mental institution. 2,000 years ago, we made those people sense. So our perspectives and worldviews change. And so anybody is always of their time. So when you cite historical leaders, they always have points of view of their time, which can now be looked upon to be less than politically correct. Or they have things that they said or they did, which were of their time, and which we can now critique and judge their leadership in a different way. So, you know, I think that any historical figure is always subject to that kind of analysis. Is You know, is always subject to that kind of analysis. What I will say is, like, there are many people throughout history who I think have pointed a way forward. 
while being imperfect, they've pointed a way forward. And they've pointed a way forward in terms of saying, actually, there is more we have to do as human beings. There's more we have to do in order to treat people right, in order to move our nation forward, in order to move this organization forward. They have led something and they've taken risks and they have put themselves out there in the world. And there are many people who have done that. You've got from religion, from politics, all of those different, different places. So, you know, you could look at Lee Kuan Yew, who was the founding prime minister of Singapore, who's revered in that country. Some of his writings today you might question, but again, he did something quite remarkable in that country in building a multicultural identity for that country, which is really founded on an idea of equality, which I think is quite remarkable. But it's not perfect. You can look at people like Martin Luther King and the movement that they led for human rights and equality which, again, they weren't perfect human beings, but they did something quite remarkable. And within their time, they spoke to people in a way that they were heard, they were listened to, and they moved people. And I think that's incredibly powerful. You know, you could take Jesus, you could take Muhammad, you could take the Buddha. All of these people have left a legacy on this world and have moved things forward. I think as long as we kind of step away from an expectation of an historical figure being perfect. There are lots of people who moved things forward. I think the thing, you know, it's a really interesting thing is like in a couple of hundred years or a thousand years, people may look back on the level, sheer levels of inequality in our society and look at us and go, how could they live with that? How could they allow that to be so? How could they have so much wealth collected in the hands of so few people while other people on the planet were starving to death? How could they allow that? And my hope is that when they look back at leaders today and what we're doing, that they will look back with some level of empathy that we were within a time and a place and we moved things forward. We maybe weren't perfect, but I hope that they can look back with that. And, and I like to look back on historical leaders a little bit in the same way. I love that. This has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Embodiedleadership.net is the website for my book. And obviously picking up a copy of the book will, will give you a lot more information. The other place that I look at is I'm a, a senior teacher with Strozzi Institute and I lead pretty much all of the European programs that they run and occasionally some in the US, although <laughs> haven't been haven't been to the US recently. But yeah, that's another place to look at, which is strozzyinstitute.com as a place to look at in terms of some of the embodied leadership programming. Great. Thank you so much, Pete Hamill. I appreciate your time today. It has been a pleasure. Very welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash embodied leadership. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a five-star review. Until next time, may peace and wisdom be with you.